0: Hello and welcome to Mimi UU. I'm Mimi Nicklin, the host of the show. This podcast is anonymous and it's audio only without names to protect from unconscious bias or judgment and to allow true empathy to grow. The goal of the show? is to share diverse stories from around the world by giving people a platform to share openly so that other people, like you, can understand diverse realities from around the globe. We exist to create empathy and not just talk about it. Welcome to me, Me, you, you. Every show we deliver for you is about creating empathy in our world. Today's guest is going to share two very different parts of her life's journey and some critical learnings for all of us in terms of how you navigate such big themes in our lives around traumatic loss, around physical and medical barriers, around true love, whether you can find it twice. So I don't want to give away her story, but it is one that I think you're going to find huge empathy and value in. And before we kick off. I just want to check that you are very comfortable today with joining the show as one of our anonymous guests and just giving us your permission to share your story without your name unless you choose to do so.
1: Yes, I'm comfortable. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Well, let's start at the beginning of your two-part story. Let's start, I know it was 23 years ago where this story began. And as I understand it, there was one day at home when your husband at the time was with your daughter. Let's start there. Okay, thank you. So I wa- this was in the year 2000
1: and I was 33 and my husband was 36 and we had been together for 17 years, 14 of them married, and our daughter was almost six, And we had just had family in for Mother's Day and we were kind of getting the house back in order and having a bit of a, let's get back in our routine on a Monday after that weekend visit. And he was reading a story to her daughter, night-night story. And she came out and told me that daddy fell asleep and she didn't have her night-night water. And that was typical. We'd both fell asleep a lot reading stories to her because she had just gotten her big girl bed, And so that no longer were we sitting on the floor reading beside her crib or toddler bed. We were laying down in the big girl bed with her. And so I I walked back there thinking, well, of course he fell asleep. And I heard what I thought was snoring. And when I got closer, I realized something was terribly wrong and that he was really gasping. And I was certified and still with to do Red Cross CPR first aid. And um, I immediately saw that I needed to start CPR in the cold 911. And, you know, she stood there and looked at me and said, is daddy going to die? And I had the presence of mind. I'm grateful now that I said, I don't do. And I continued doing CPR. And they came, that ambulance came, it seemed pretty well, to take a knee on, but I think it was pretty quick. And they worked on him for a long time. And during all of this, I really didn't understand what was happening. And I began to fracture as a person, as many people do in a in a trauma. And, you know, I was able to get myself in mama mode and had her, you know, a little sweatshirt inside you know, we're going to go into the hospital. And they worked on him for a long time. And we rode in the ambulance behind him And a friend of mine was able to meet us at the emergency room, and they came and told me they were not able to revive him and that his heart had stopped. And that was a moment in time that obviously none of those moments have faded for me, even though it has been 23 years. It's all very, it's all still very real in my mind. And What's most amazing to me is that I'm talking to you today, 23 years later, and although I'm still that person who went through that, and it's still quite fresh in my mind, I have a wonderful life today. And I, you know, as, as time, you know, as the time tipped very slowly after that happened, I certainly didn't think that
0: would be the case. And what, prompted you today, 23 years later, to want to share that story? Well, during
1: my time after this, I had, there was one person who, you know, I feel like it was not a chance, but actually a kind of divine intervention that I, through a series of circumstances, came across a woman who also had lost her husband very suddenly 17 years prior. And she ended up being my touch point, my, my everything. You know, somebody who really, and I, today she and I are still best of friends. Um, I learned a lot from her. And one of the things that she shared with me early on was that in 17 years, she had been paired in many ways with many different widows, and nobody ever took her up on her offer for help even though she was in a church environment, a Christian environment, where you you know would think people would be more open to this, that there's something about being a widow that once you become a widow, you don't want to be in that club. Mm. And I remember early on people giving me books about being a widow and things of that nature, and I was like, why are they giving me these? Who is that? Mm. You know, I didn't want to be that. And I have, now it's been 23 years, I'm still really close to that, that woman who helped me. And I have had opportunity to run across others who've gone through it. And it's hard to reach that crowd. But I hope that maybe somebody out there will hear this today and and hear the hear what I heard from my friend that, you know, you are going to get through this. And I see you. I hear you. I know what you're going through.
0: I, I want to ask you a little bit more about that word widow. And your insight there that even though you have become the definition of a widow because you have lost your husband, that you or women you have met don't want to identify as a widow. What did that mean to you? What does that word mean? And, and why did it feel so far away from who you were at the time? I think because it's such a uh,
1: daunting dark, lonely, helpless, eternally sad, mm-hmm. eternally powerless, you know, the children and the widows, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of what plays in my mind. And I it's impo- it was impossible for me having this sudden incident that happened. It was impossible for me to to face to face that reality that that I had become somebody different. One of the things that happened in the early days after that, you know, I realized immediately, I mean, in that moment, once I saw him and I knew on one level, as soon as I got back there, I, I saw his eyes and I knew, I knew what was happening. And then in the, it's, you know, in the minutes and hours that passed, I re- I realized right away that the person I was, was that the person I was after this happened, you know, the person I was prior to this knew nothing about the world I was getting ready to go through. And so part of it was losing myself as well.
0: And what did that mean as a mother? You you mentioned earlier that there was a moment where your little girl, who was the same age that mine is now, looked at you and said, mommy is daddy gonna die and you said I I don't know but of course a few hours later you did know yeah what did what does that mean for your identity and your journey as a mother to such a small young girl
1: well especially in our situation I mean I had a really amazing wonderful we he and I were best friends and and he was my North Star. He was my touch point. He was my everything. And when we we were married for eight years before we had our daughter, and I did not know how I could go on and do this without him. And at the same time, I I mean, it speaks pretty loudly to how I felt that I I loved him. I do still so much that I thought, well, better me. I'm glad you're not having to go through what I'm doing is what I said to myself in my body, which today just I mean, I, I didn't want to be dead. I just couldn't imagine anything worse than what I was facing. Mm-hmm. And at this and I also felt like, you know, I mean, I I know later, I mean, I developed a lot of survivor guilt and I also Just did not know how. I thought she was going to be half a person. You know, how would I ever be able to do? I knew I could never be what he was. And I knew that as at her age, you know, those memories would start slipping. And I just, I
0: couldn't bear it. And fasting, fasting forward, fast forward to today and and the years that went by since then. How did your daughter remember that evening? You know she was with her dad reading a story. She couldn't have been more in that moment than she was. How did she remember that, and how did she talk about that to her mom and to you as time passed?
1: She remembers it a lot like I in Nino. it made her you know later my son which is another story, you know, ended up doing ha- having something similar happen. When a child has a huge trauma like that happen, they grow up in a minute, in a less than a minute. you know, they start facing things that that people sometimes never face in their whole life. And she was amazing, you know, and it became me and her against the world and you know she, of course, you know, had, of course, this has been a life-shaping trauma for her, but she did not, you know, she's 29 now
0: and her life has not been defined by her. And before we move on to the sun you just mentioned and, and how you, you moved on in your life, I just want to ask about about empathy and about sympathy, which we know are different things. In the months that followed you losing your husband, did you feel that people were able to both understand you, empathize and sympathize, step in and and show you ways that they were sympathizing? Did you find you were surrounded by people? Did you find it very lonely? You know, for people that are perhaps going through a similar experience now, what was your experience and what would your advice be for others looking for that community or connection at, at these times of traumatic loss? I felt that I
1: was alone in a silo, in a bubble that nobody could be at work. I felt like I was separated from the world. And I did have people around me who wanted to help and offer sympathy. And I thank God for that. But it wasn't until... About a week later, when I met this woman who later became so important to me, it wasn't until I met her that I felt seen and heard in a way that I couldn't even explain at the time. You know, she was able to speak to me in very real terms about what happened with her and in a way that that empathy just was life saving. And so I think it was important for me to hear you know, I know what you feel like. You know, she told me in detail about how when she was in the receiving line at at the funeral for her husband, she just thought somebody would love her enough to help her figure out how to kill herself. And yet it had been 17 years for her and she was obviously a, a vibrant and amazing and empathetic, wonderful, happy, laughing person. And so I just can't explain how much hope that Mm. And Mm -hmm. recently, I will tell you this, I recently have had opportunity, sadly, a friend of mine lost a spouse very quickly after their wedding and in their early 30s. And when I was able to speak with her after this, not right away, but months after this happened, and I saw her face to face, and I said, you know, it isn't going to get better. And I know that it's been 23 years for me. And, you know, it doesn't get better. But what does happen, and the real miracle, the miracle I've experienced is that although I've, I've my capacity for grief and holding something devastating is there still in me, but also my capacity for joy and, and, love and life has increased as much. And so I'm able to do, you know, I'm able to hold it all. And I haven't had to try to, you know, it doesn't it doesn't work to think you're gonna move on or find the good in it. You know, you can find a lot of gratitude in everything. You can always find gratitude. and I definitely found that gratitude was the way through. That trauma. It is still the way through that trauma, but you know, I know the reality, and it is. I'm not going to try to fool myself that you know the memories of that incident
0: are never going to feel different than they feel today, what they felt that day. So, time does it heal, or is that is that not a reality?
1: That's something people say, but it really isn't true. Of when I heard that, I and when I was freshly wounded, I would say, I don't want time. I mean, I knew somehow on some level that that wasn't true. Like, I'm going to forget about
0: this. It's not going to fade. My memory is not going to fade about this. I mean, so tell me a little bit more about devastation and joy. And the context of that question is that I know the second half of your story does involve you falling in love again, which, of course, for anyone that has been recently widowed, feels like an utter impossibility. Tell us a little bit about how you moved through and with the devastation that you've said, you know, you still hold to today, and found joy and found the permission and the space to love again.
1: If somebody had told me, In the earlier days, when, you know, in the days, weeks, or even months after this happened, that I would be married again, I would just have flatly told them that's impossible. Um, It wasn't something I wanted. It wasn't something I thought would make things better. It it wasn't something I cared about. Um, I had never even been on a date with anyone other than my first husband. And how that happened for me is I was taken in. By a loving and supportive community, it happened to be a church. I was not really going to church when all this happened, but I did grow up in a church community, and I did have some amount of faith, a grain there that was, you know, enough to grow on. And our my daughter and I, we were both kind of taking it, and we had a lot of love and care and compassion. And, you know, it was very, very hard. It, it was mostly passing time and people helping me pass time. Mm-hmm. You know, that part, I think, was it makes it was different for our daughter than it was for me. Uh, and then I definitely went through a lot more belligerence than, than she might have. But I had people who were willing to feel that with me and listen to me about that. And I got professional help also. And I happened to be in a career that meant it made it where I had a good network of professional people that I could talk with. And so for a year or two, you know, we were in that environment and, you know, there was a lot that I did right as far as just putting one foot in front of the other. And part of me was able to move forward doing the things that I knew I needed to do, even when my heart wasn't in it. And eventually, you know, the parts of me that I felt had died that day began to feel. And that person who had helped me so much, the other widow, you know, she and I became such close friends in an inexplicable way. And, you know, we started having a lot more laughter and, you know, at one point, you know, she and her husband were both like, Hey, it's time for you to start. It's time for you to meet somebody. And, you know, we approached it like it was a game, like it wasn't even real. You know, it kind of brought out the inner middle schooler in both of us. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't expect anything to come of it. And I honestly, looking back, I mean, none of it made sense. And I don't really feel like it was anything that I did. I feel like it was divine intervention. But one of those people that she suggested for me, you know, I ended up marrying him. And it was a really unlikely outcome. You know, he and I have nothing in common. We came from very different walks of life. And it was very unexpected. We spent about a year just getting to know each other and... Then through a series of events, we, you know, it's interesting, you know, we had become close, and I think we had thoughts about the future. In fact, you know, he's eight years older than I am, and he said to me, once we, you know, before we really started getting very, very serious, he said to me, you know, I really want you to think about this. Statistically, you know, I'm eight years older than you, and I don't want you to have to go through this again. Mm. And... You know, I think I, I mean, I loved that about him. And the other piece here that's really important about my story is that he was and is a very whole, grounded person. He wasn't needing me in his life. He felt very comfortable in his elder skin. And so I'm sure that's part of what was so attractive to me because I wanted to feel that way too. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that. I couldn't have verbalized that at the time. At the time, you know, I thought, oh, I have all this, this big Italian family and siblings and I've had a really good marriage and he's living all by himself. Won't I be good for him? <laughs> and, you know, in, in hindsight, you know, it, it's it's really, as I said, it's only to line intervention but he and I, my, you know, my dad was coming to see me and I had, we'd had a little break in at my house and that was really traumatic for my daughter and I, and I had kind of done my usual thing where I get back on the horse, you know, we had moved temporarily over to his place for a couple of days while they repaired the door that had been kicked in. And then I moved right back in. And I think just having that that brief period of time where we were together all of us was like a little bit of a fantasy almost and then when i moved back into my house which i wanted to you know it was like hmm and one day we were just having a discussion and my dad was coming about 10 days later and we just sort of decided we went back and talked to our daughter to my now i say our daughter to my daughter at the time and you know, we decided to get married when my dad was in town, and I called him up and asked him to bring his suit. <laughs> and we got married 10 days later.
0: Wow. And that that shift there from my daughter to our daughter, again, for, for anyone listening, it can feel like such a, a faraway reality. Was that a very natural shift for, for him and for your daughter? How, how did that come about? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> you know. Some of I was wondering if that was going to yeah. be the easy bit of your story, but perhaps oh, not. No, no,
1: no. <laughs> she she fought it too she fought it with everything she had, and you know, I mean, I was the adult in the situation, so it was. I knew is even though it was a grief and a horrible thought and sadness for me, I knew that by the time she was grown, she would have spent more time with him, that he would have ended up fathering her. And I I knew that would happen, you know, and it did. Uh, and he also adopted her. He adopted her right after we got married, which we, you know, was there was some not everybody was happy about that. I'm not sorry at all that we did that. Part of the reason for me was I wasn't divorced, and I didn't want her growing up with a different name than me, and everybody assuming that that meant she and her parents were divorced and I don't mean any disparagement towards anybody who is divorced I know plenty of people who are divorced and they've been able to make really well at their situation just like I have but I just didn't want that narrative to be out there in her life because I had a wonderful marriage and we had found myself in another one.
0: So fast forward again you then mentioned earlier that you have another child so I'm assuming that you found yourself pregnant but that could be an assumption yes and (laughs) that's okay good i'm always very aware to to not put those in but sometimes they really come but they come before my brain catches up so i know that wasn't i'm glad that was an accurate one yeah so you find yourself now having another baby tell us a little bit about that next chapter so
1: we got married and you know for a long time just didn't do anything to prevent pregnancy but we were not going to try to go to extra measures either we were grateful we we had a daughter that we could raise together and you know he was I was 38 and he was 45 at the time and after we'd been married for a year and had kind of moved on from that idea I found out I was pregnant and we were thrilled and I was also you know, kind of mortified because I knew what that meant. (laughs) I'd been through that once. (laughs) But it was amazing. And, you know, I felt very we felt very fortunate. You know, it's really against all odds. I never thought I would have another child. And it was a wonderful thing for our daughter too. You know, she was ten when her brother was born. And, you know, I would say she she never I don't think she still feels like we are good enough for him. You know, she has been his everything. He has been her everything. And um, and that has just been the most amazing thing in this world. I feel like, you know, if something happened to, to me and my husband right now, you know, we've done our part for the world because we t- put these two amazing human beings into the world. And, you know, they're each... The most she has grown into the most amazing woman that I have ever known. And he also has grown into the most amazing human being, the most amazing I have ever known. And they are still everything to each other. And it's absolutely wonderful.
0: What a absolute blessing. So it is. We started, you know, with a with a huge trauma. We got to the part of your story where you found love again against all the odds. Really, you talked about divine intervention. And now, perhaps the second divine intervention, you have this little boy who is wholly accepted by his big sister. But I know that when he was 11 years old, something else happened to shift your story again. Tell us about that. So he was, a,
1: he is still a really healthy and vital human being he played soccer he was in boy scouts he you know everything was moving along as as usual and one day we got a phone call that he had collapsed on the playground pretty much and that his, he could not walk and you can i mean i don't have to illustrate for anybody then what happened yeah we were you know it was an emergency there was urgency we it, you know ended up at the hospital the there were many, many teams, you know, trying to understand what was happening. He felt like he couldn't walk, but we really could there was no understanding on my part as to why or how. And part of what happened to me in that, in that trauma that I, I, I mean, I definitely have some PTSD and my initial response was just looking at him and saying, walk, like I, I couldn't compute. This wasn't happening. I even said to him, I know you had a really hard test today but come on like i know you can walk Hmm. and he couldn't and so massive you know medical school and regional trauma center every all the great minds on it and through a long process and a long night we learned that you know they he had a eventually he had a brain mri and in the middle of the night you know they came and and woke me up in in the hospital room to show me on a whiteboard what was happening and explain a condition called PRE malformation. And it's to make this succinct, it's it's a it's not exactly a brain condition as much as it's a crowding in the back of the skull, kind of in the same line with spina bifida and things of that nature. It's something you can be born with or it can happen because of an injury. And so there's a lot of discovery that has happened. And because this, what happens is the crowding will limit spinal fluid flow and that can manifest itself in many ways, which is why it has been very rarely diagnosed and discovered. And I think today it's getting much more, you know, just like everything else, they're getting much better at identifying it today. But we had no warning that he had anything like this going on. And it was, of course, a lot to take in. And they told me, you know, we're bringing in this amazing pediatric neurosurgeon who happens to live here because he wants to be by the water and he specializes in this condition, which, you know, I mean, of course, you know, that, that, was, a, that was, again, another, another divine intervention. But, you know, he came and explained to us all what was happening, asked us if we wanted him to be part of the conversation. And we said yes. And he explained that we could do kind of a a Band-Aid approach or the radical approach. Both were brain surgery, and the more radical approach would be considered a cure, but also carried more risk. And Parks, our son, decided he wanted to do it all, and so we did. And it was a very tough surgery, and he missed half of fifth grade, and he had a lot of occupational therapy and physical therapy and he is an Eagle Scout today and he has had a full recovery. He has had, he's 19, Uh, you know, he's done 50 mile bike rides, survival camping. I mean, he's,
0: he's living life, living life,
1: but it was a tough recovery. And of course, you know, very significant event in his life. When he was about three months into recovery, You know, one of the things that can let someone know they might have this condition can be headaches. And he had not really had headaches, but I had had migraines, chronic migraines, since I was about 12. And so I asked the doctor, is this something that could be hereditary? And he said, in a small percentage of the cases it can. And I told him I'd had these headaches. And he's like, well, let me look at your MRI. And although I'd gone to like a world-renowned neurologist, when I'd had a CAT scan that was normal, we hadn't gone further and had an MRI. So I went ahead and had one. And we learned that I had it too. And so nine months after our son's surgery, I had it as well. And I have not had another headache since that day. And that has been seven years, and it's been absolutely life-changing. And there's no way to really describe the miracle of that. You know, I mean, anybody who has a chronic migraine knows what that means. It changed who I am. It changed my entire life. And we never would have even looked. Even if someone had discovered in some way, randomly, that I had that condition, I never would have been, I would have been like, well, yeah, I'm not going for brains, you know, but having been through it, having developed the trust with the doctor, having seen my son through it I knew how hard it would be but I also knew that it would be okay and I and I didn't hesitate at all I was like let's do it and let's do it quickly, so I don't have to think about it very long." Well.
0: <laughs> but so, I, again another assumption from me here but I would assume that your recovery would be slightly more complex than than of a child it was uh, the doctor
1: told me you know, he is an amazing, he is still in my life today, of course. You know, we were a very unusual family for him. And, you know, he said to me right up front, you know, you're, at the time I was 50. He's like, you're 50, you're not 11. It's going to be a harder recovery. And I can't really, he's like, a surgeon would love to have better odds that this is going to cure your headaches. He's like, I can't, I can't tell you that, they, that it's going to cure your I can tell you that you have a a, a carry malformation. I can tell you that I can fix that, but I don't know for sure that it's going to take care of your headaches. And I, he said maybe like a 70% chance. And I was, oh my gosh, if he had said to me 10% chance, I would have been like, yes, let's try. (laughs) So, I mean, I didn't hesitate at all. I was like, let's do it. And I mean, it's life changing. Absolutely life changing, and so I I feel like my son. I mean, I'm. It was awful. I wouldn't have put him through that for anything. I mean, he like our daughter. He went through something that took t- t- this little 11 year old boy, and he became a man. I mean, he faced his mortality bravely. He recovered strongly. You say he faced some difficulties that many many grown people never do, and so I wouldn't push. I I didn't want that for him, of course, but I'm so grateful for his strength and his ability to work through a trauma because it helped
0: me with mine. Mm. We had another guest on our show in series one, also a mother who went through brain surgery. And in her story, she told me a little bit about the moment before she went to sleep for the surgery, knowing that someone was going to operate on her brain, which, I mean, that's a, that's a big thing to get your head around. Tell us just a little bit about, I don't know, the two hours, the one hour, the two minutes yeah. before surgery, knowing that someone is literally opening up your head. I think that this is another
1: case where, for me, having a safe, in a power bigger than myself is something that i've learned in my adult life i didn't really have that growing up but i but i do today i did before this happened and sometimes that power greater than myself is just somebody i respect who knows so much more than I do. even if i have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea of god you know i i, I my god is too difficult like I'm a human I'm a finite human I can't really explain how God works you know I can't really grasp that but I do feel like people are here and that God is behind everything that you know we do experience and I can have great faith in in other people and I just I was scared but I, and I did do some sort of getting my affairs in order, but I I was confident I was going to wake up. You know, since then, my son and I both have shared with each other in a way that people really can't normally, that we both still are bothered by the fact that someone has been in our brain. Mm. It's a very tough thing. We both have had some therapy over it. It's a place you just shouldn't be touched. (laughs) You know, it's really and especially for children. Some children have nightmares about like their head opening up and their brain coming out, things like that. And Mm -hmm. and it's I didn't really have that per se, but but I we both feel like on some level of consciousness we remember the surgery,
0: which
1: is not something I like to dwell on and neither does he. Mm,
0: I can imagine. Gosh, well, indeed. What a journey. And shared with me and with our audience today, gosh, with such grace and and such braveness. You've been through huge loss, huge trauma. But you've also talked about great joy and love and being able to balance the two, which I feel for many is a huge lesson in in empathy, but also in In faith, whether that is religious faith, you have touched on that today, or just faith in life, in the human race, that we can, as you've said, move through some of these events in our life and find new avenues and new paths and new journeys. Today, I know you are coaching others and helping others in areas such as career transitions, traumatic loss and the overcoming of that. And of course, physical and medical interventions and and how to handle that. Tell us as we begin to close, what, what does coaching mean to you? Why has that become your path? And how has that helped you make sense of your own journey today? So
1: I spent 32 years as a leader in HR, as an HR director, an HR manager. And, you know, that was sort of going on in the background while all the rest of these things were happening. And... I had to rally myself over and over and over again in order to rededicate myself to what I was doing, because it was very important for me to feel like like, everything I do matters. Like there's some, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to be doing something idle or meaningless. And so it's been very important to me to feel a sense of mission and purpose. And it was pretty hard for me to conjure up working for some of these corporate, entities and universities that I've supported. And during the pandemic, I just had a lot of coming together of things. You know, I mentioned my husband was a little bit older. He's looking at retirement and I had a lot of support from one of my siblings. And I, one day without really planning on it, kind of like the wedding, you know, I, I said to my employer, I I need to find a different way to work. And I didn't really know what that meant. And so I went and found a coach. And in a one hour session, my entire life changed. And, you know, that is meaningful, that is impactful. And that that person who coached me thought that maybe I could do what she had done, which was transition from HR to coaching. And at first I thought, well, who would pay me for that? That just sounds like fun. <laughs> And, you know, she helped me see that it was feasible and and I had enough of the, you know, I had enough to go on. I went back to school and became certified. And then, you know, in in the beginning I thought, oh, I've been coaching all along because I've been working in in HR. But I learned in about 10 minutes of class time that I had never coached (laughs) because I had always had a bias. In my, you know, that, that was required of my job, even if I did want to meet somebody where they were and give them space and, you know, help them become their best self, that wasn't mm-hmm. what I was being paid to do. Mm-hmm. So anytime I went into that realm, it would be kind of under the radar. And so in, in coaching training, and I, I mean, one person told me, you're going to love coach training so much. You're going to love it. Even if you decide not to be a coach, you're going to love the learning. And that was so true. Because part of being a coach for me and many coaches that I know is getting your own foundation really solid first so that you can be of service to others. And so, you know, it's a win-win and I don't, you know, I don't go into a coaching session with any kind of bias, but I have a lot of empathy and that helps me hold space for other people regardless. I, I don't have to know anything about their situation. You know, I've learned, I've really good skills. I've learned to listen hear. You know, I've always, my natural proclivity, I've always been a person who, who, who loves to find the best in the person or even in a family pet, you know? I mean, it's just my, that's what I love to do. I'm an artist as well. And so I have a way of looking at the world where, you know, I want to be creative and I want to create beauty and, um, you know, somebody asked me what my superpower was in a training session that I was in not long ago, and I said I collect people. That is my superpower. And coaching is just amazing. It allows me to. It allows me to do
0: that. What a what a beautiful way to find a second career, mm-hmm. second purpose, a second purpose in life. It's like so oh, well, good. You know. <laughs> it's yeah, wonderful. Well, yes, and I and I you know for our audience my guest and I today met through her coaching and through the work that both of us share huge passion in in terms of holding that space and, and creating opportunity for people so indeed that coaching journey led you to be here today as well for which I'm incredibly grateful and it has been an absolute honor to to hear your journey through my own ears my own show and and I truly hope that for the audience they have followed with as much empathy as I've been able to. My last question to every guest is whether they would like to maintain their anonymity or reveal your name and location and that decision is entirely yours. I am
1: fine with saying who I am and where I am. I am Kathy Gerardo and
0: I am in Savannah, Georgia. Kathy from Savannah, Georgia. It has been an absolute honor. Thank you for your time, your honesty, your candidness and just your passion for sharing your story with others for everyone tuning in i hope this journey was a powerful one for you whether you have had some of these experiences or know someone who has the show has been created to to share empathy to create connection to overcome loneliness for so many of us around the world and if you would like to hear more do find us at me me you you show on instagram or across linkedin Kathy, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Mimi Yuu This episode is one in a series that has been designed to create empathy in our world. If you would like to join us on the show, please click on www.joinmimiuu.com or follow us across social media at Mimi me, me, UU Show. I believe that the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. And I hope that this show is the beginning of doing just that.